The work that we have to do is so hard. Yeah. And it's because it's this tearing up and, you know, tearing down and uprooting and in, in, in the life of Jeremiah, and especially even in that, in that call that he gets, he's given these six verbs and only two of them are positive to build and plan. <laughs> the other four are like getting rid of that mess, right? overthrowing it, right? And so oftentimes it feels like, um, whether it's in our communities or in our, in our institutions, we're given, we're given the, the responsibility of putting our finger on what's wrong and saying that has to go because you cannot plant on cement. Mm. Nothing will grow there. Amigos, amigas y amigues, it's the end of October, less than a week until the election, and I'm not going to lie, as I'm sure most of you are, I'm nervous about next Tuesday. I think about it over and over at all hours of the day, and the only thing keeping me grounded is the reminder that no matter the outcome, whether in our favor or not, we still have so much work to do. At the end of the day, empires are still empires, and whether taking time to mourn or celebrate, I don't want to lose track of our mission to make this world a more just and equitable and loving place. So I pray that over myself and over you, friends, if you so wish to receive it. Besides that, I hope your October has had moments of joy and rest and challenges, the kinds of challenges that make us better and stronger and more informed. I do have a special episode today with the wonderful Sandra Van Opstel, who has been such a gift to me the last year or so. I mentioned this in our conversation, but Sandra puts her money where her mouth is. She talks about empowering the next generation, and then she actually does it. (laughs) She'll call me to check in, set up Zoom calls to talk to me about how to fight for my value as a woman of color, speaker, and writer. She's provided dinner for me across the country when I've been sick. She's the real deal, y'all, and I'm so excited to share our conversation with you. Also, This will be the last interview of 2020. I know, so sad, but the protagonistas is going through some good and positive changes, so I'll be taking the next couple of months to prepare for that. I will be recording a short podcast update that'll go live mid-November to fill you in on the fun, so stay tuned for that. And things will resume back to a hopefully stronger and better normal in January. I hope you are blessed by this conversation with Sandra, And welcome to the protagonistas. Okay, so today on the protagonistas, we are chatting with Sandra Van Ofso, which I'm super excited for. Um, Thanks for chatting with me, Sandra. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. So before I ask you to share about yourself, I do want to just sort of uh, brag on you a little bit, because I just want to say when it comes to um, I know you talk about or you've talked about mentoring the next generation or just like really pouring into the next generation. And I will say that you put your money where your mouth is. I feel like (laughs) I'll post something on on Facebook like these freaking men are asking me to work for them for free. And like minutes later, I get a text like, we're jumping on a call. I want to help you guys with this, you know? So I just want to say thank you, really. Like there are a few people 
that are that just like, and I know that it's not that you're not super busy. You're just like, look, I have five seconds. I'm going to send this text, let her know that she's not alone. All right, let's keep moving. So anyway, thank you for that. <laughs> no, I'm here for that. People have been there for me. I want to be there for others. Yeah, because this is, you know, it's a, it's a tough, tough thing to navigate <laughs> trying to do this whole thing and figure out how to, how to um, navigate the whole white man's world. So anyway, thank you for all of that. So I want to start with, I would just love for you, for those of you who may not, or for those that are listening that may not know you, if you want to share a little bit about yourself, who are you? What do you do? You know, where are you from? Where's your background from? All of that. Uh, well, you guys are finding me today in the, in the thing that comes to mind first is that I'm the mother of two little ones. So I have two yeah. six-year-olds. They just turned six this week. And I'm like struggling in the remote learning oh world gosh. right now. So um, I am a mother. That's how I'm feeling myself today. Yeah. Um, I'm a mother of two little ones specifically. Um, I'm uh, the daughter of two immigrants, which is very important to me um, because it's deeply, deeply shaped how I live life, understand life, engage life, and imagine life, all of those things. Mm -hmm. um, my mother um, and my father both came from South America when they were young and they kind of came here, learn, you know, learned English and studied and um, got jobs and met one another and started their families here. And so living life through their lenses has deeply shaped how I see myself um, yeah. as a Latina, as a second generation um, person in this country um, who's trying to, um, yeah, just be a person of faith in the midst of all the mixed bag that um, we live here. And so um, I grew up making fun of my mom because of the way she talked, because I think that's what all of us do when we're, uh, she used to be like, someday you're going to move to another country and your kids are going to make fun of you as you're learning another language. But, uh, you know, lots of really, really joyful moments having parents that are, are kind of learning culture, you know, learning right. things as they go along and, you know, lots of deep pain coming from that kind of experience. So I think those things have just shaped me as a person, as a mother, as a neighbor, as a Christian, as a person who's trying to change the world very, very deeply. Um, I'm a pastor. I am uh, an author. I, you know, I, I used to lead worship, although now I very rarely ever lead worship um, just because I'm more equipping and training other mm -hmm. artists and worship leaders to um, find their place at the intersection of worship and justice. So those are the kinds of things I do. Um, I am married to uh, Carl, who is a white man from Wisconsin. He is the exact opposite every kind of personality and temperament type and strength than I am. And so I think we make a really good team. Um, <laughs> and we're slowly trying to conquer the world together. That's what we're trying to do is like make changes in our little neck of the woods here in our neighborhood on the west side of Chicago, as well as you know, in the places that, that we find ourselves that God has brought us. So, yeah. That's so good. Yes. Yeah. So it's funny you say, you talk about Carl, cause I, I think I've mentioned this before. I feel like whenever you put like on social media, like my husband is white and nerdy and into books and I am just like loud and all that. I'm like, me too. <laughs> it is well, Carl, a really good mix sometimes. But he is thoughtful. So yeah. um, he's <laughs> yeah. not quiet, but he is thoughtful. Um, yeah, I, I find that, um, you know, it's like a really good mix of like, can you imagine if we were able to, like, that's me, like dreaming of all the things. And then right. my husband's like, how, how would you go about doing that? You know, right. <laughs> um, and he's a project manager. So he makes 
things happen. And mm-hmm. so I think that's been our journey, like yeah. as friends and partners. And we've just kind of thought, like, what does it look like to imagine life and then build that together? And we have a friend group that we do that with locally and that we're committed to and that we've been in relationship with with a lot for a long, long time. So, yeah. Here's to la revolucion. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Okay, so um, I read online how you, when you talked about that you're the daughter of immigrants um, from Latin America, um, and I'll just kind of read a little bit of what you said and ask you to elaborate on that. So you said, I'm the daughter of immigrants from Latin America and I have never known a day where injustice was not impacted or was not impacting the lives of the ones I love. As a six-year-old child, I was coached by my mother to not let anyone know I was Latina. And you say, Sandrita, chukin pitin, my mother told me. This is the way a mom helps her daughter survive the racism of the white suburbs in the 80s. So can you talk to me a little bit about that, about survival fitting in and how many of us are taught to suppress who we are or who we are is often a source of shame. I know I have actually a friend of mine, she just posted on social media this whole long thing about, you know, growing up in Miami and she just never felt, um, and even in, in an immigrant city, like even many ways she felt like she was not Latina enough or in many ways, you know, her Spanish was kind of off or all these things. And so she felt such a source of shame for being um, either not Latina enough and then leaving Miami and being too, you know, too Latina in many ways. So anyways, if you want to just talk to me a little bit about your experience, um, yeah, kind of trying to fit in, but then also come Coming into and reclaiming your identity. Okay, cat girl, you're trying to get into my therapy <laughs> sessions. All right, um, I, I just started crying during your question. Let's let's see what, what's happening today. I, man, it's hard to know. It's hard to be yourself in the world. I think for all, all of us, like all of us, are on this journey of understanding who God made us to be. Right. Um, and our journey in that is not just about like here are my preferences and here are my strengths and here's my personality and here's my you know kind of things that I'm good at and you know it's really a question of like what are the things that have influenced my understanding of the world and who I am in the world mm-hmm. um so yeah I mean I learned very early on that who I was and the community that I belonged to was not good and I think that um, that came through the experience of having moved from an urban environment there were, where there was a lot of diversity, uh, particularly many, many different Latinidad, you know, like Latinidades, you know, right, countries right. and peoples and dialects. And, um, and I moved to an, a, a new all white up and coming, you know, suburb. And I realized, oh my gosh, like I am strange. Um, and that's why I think my mother was trying to give me what she felt was the best advice to survive and thrive in that environment, which is to right. assimilate and fit in, right. um, mostly because she couldn't, you know, she yeah. could never have done that. So she right. felt like, look, I came to this country at 18 with nothing mm-hmm. so that you could be making something of yourself. And, um, I think she had a sense of what the world was like. And so for me, I realized that, yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know that I could have at the time in that setting could have passed to be just like everyone else, but I did my hardest, you know, I tried my hardest to do it. Um, And I think that's where I pretty much lived my first, you know, 18 years of my life, which was to just figure out how to win the game. Like, how do you need to act? How do you need to speak? Who do you need to be in order to win? And then I spent most of my twenties undoing everything that I had um, done um, and then realizing maybe in my thirties that 
um, I couldn't undo it because it had so deeply shaped me. Yeah. So I'm like, listen to me. Like I, I clearly, I grew up in a suburb. All right, y'all. So it's, it's not going to change. Like I walk like a suburban person. I talk like a, and I can't help that. That that's, that's not something to be ashamed of. That's just a part of my journey. It's a part of what marked me and to pretend that that isn't a part of me to try to undo something that actually deeply shaped me is not possible. So there are ways that I interact socioeconomically, for example, um, that are very upper middle class suburban. Um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outliers writes about that. Like, it doesn't matter what race or ethnicity you are. If you grew up in an upper middle class socioeconomic environment, you're taught to interact with authority and adults very differently than if you right. grew up in a lower income experience. And so you're taught to go to the doctor and ask questions. You're taught to ask for what you, and I train my kids the same way, like look at them in the eyes, speak to them, you know, like mm -hmm. very how, how I was raised. So I know that I carry with me a level of um, agency and entitlement that comes from growing up in that experience, even though my family itself was not really a part of that socioeconomic reality. Right. So we, we didn't have what the neighbors had um, and even though nobody knew about the struggles that we had just financially and in life, um, the way that I was taught to be has very much shaped me. And so right. I will go to places of power and ask for things and demand things and, and operate in a certain way because I was taught and groomed to do so. So, yeah, I think at this point, I'm like, you know, I'm in my forties and I'm like, I don't have time to apologize for who I am. There's too much to get done people. Let's stop apologizing <laughs> for who we are. Um, we got work to do. And the only way to do it is to bring our distinctives together and to work together. Yeah, no, that's so good. I, I appreciate you saying that. I actually, in my book that, that I I'm working on, I, there's a, you know, in the beginning, I'm talking about how I'm trying to look at a decolonial lens of, you know, theology through, through Aulita theology. But at the end of the day, I'm a Western person. Like at the end of the day, I'm not going to be fully, you know, decolonized or whatever. Right. So we're all on this journey where we bring all of that, the Western, you know, the suburban, the, you know, we bring all of that and that's part of it, you know? And so I think we often see a notion of deconstruction as, you know, just just rip it all apart, you know, forget about all of that. But no, I think that's, you know, it's part of it. So it, everything builds on the other and, and you can, you know, you can build something beautiful and deconstruct something painful and sort of all of that in the midst of it. And, and so I appreciate that you, you mentioning that. And I think that that's part of our stories, right? Like there's beauty and there's pain and there's struggle and, and there's all, it's often really mixed and like, you know, all weird in there and it's hard to sometimes pick apart, but that's part of it. Right. Uh, there's another thing that you say here, and this is more relating to your spiritual journey um, that I thought was interesting. And so you talk about how uh, you were formed early on in the Catholic Church. And then you say that in the teen years that you were formed in, you know, by white evangelical expressions of faith. And so that gave you a love for devotional time with Jesus or sharing your faith and learning to inductively study scripture but with an absence of justice. And so can you talk a little bit about your spiritual background and your journey of being formed in white evangelical spaces and then realizing, wait a minute, there's something off here. Like how was that journey of sort of bringing those two things together? Yeah, I'm, I'm so thankful for the different expressions of spirituality within Christianity that I was able to uh, participate in and be a witness to and, and, and kind of, and have shaped me. Right. So I would say that, um, the experience of 
attending church and worshiping with my grandmother and with my mother and with my family when I was really young. I think those things helped me to survive the transition that I was making as a young child moving from a very diverse urban setting into a very uh, white uh, suburban setting. I think they, um, it was like the liturgy and the language and the practice Mm. of just being at home, you know, like this is what it feels like to be at home. So I think because the Catholic mass is the same, no matter where you go, right. Aside from the language, I was able to transition from being in a bilingual Spanish immersion, Catholic kind of preschool experience into another school experience, but still have the ritual of Catholic mass um, in Spanish as a part of my connection and congruency. And I was actually thinking about that a lot because my son, uh, my sons go, they went to um, a private Catholic school last year for kindergarten and preschool. And my son, Husto was telling me that his favorite part of, of school is mass. Oh, wow. And he's a church kid. He's a pastor's kid. He grew up in the church, but our <laughs> yeah. church is like, it's like, Pente- it's reformacostal. You know, it's like, yeah. there's a lot, it's loud. There's music, there's crying, there's prayer time, there's altar call. I mean, there's so much going on, you know? And so I just, um, it's, it was so different. That expression of, of worship was so different. And yet he found it so, so personal and so yeah. um, grounding for him. And so yeah, it was interesting that he, when he said that, it reminded me that that was just a very important part of my my spirituality and how God molds, molded and has molded right. me so much so that even these, not these COVID days, but um, when I go to retreat, I always find myself in Catholic retreat centers because there's something about having, you know, elements of that expression of Christianity as a part of my continual faith journey. So then, yeah, I, you know, I got saved, quote unquote, in a Southern Baptist experience as a 13 year old. That was very transformative for me. It was the right. first time anyone ever asked me to identify and say with my mouth in public that I was a follower of Jesus in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of individualistic altar call kind of, you know, raise your hand if you want to have Jesus in your life experience to born again, to be born again and again and again. Um, recommitments, you know, th- that was very formative for me as a teenager because I mean, every week you were doing like lots of bad decisions. You probably shouldn't have been. Doing, so you're kind of like always, I think it, it formed me in a, the idea of repentance in a very right. kind of, you know, distinct way. And then from there, you know, all forms of, I mean, everything from Kojic to Pentecostal to, you know, Methodist to, I just, in my college years and in my young adult years, mega, suburban mega church, all of it though, kind of evangelical adjacent and, and obviously on staff with university for so long. So those things really deeply helped me. And so I, I, I think I'm more of my approach to it basically is like every community of faith has a particularity that it leans into and because it leans so far into that particularity it misses things because it is unable to kind of take a a broader view out and see like okay what what might we be missing in our expression and because each of those expressions denominationally also come from a particular ethnic culture like they're not neutral they come from I mean reformed comes from dutch reformed you know like swedish covenant i mean trace all of them back so german lutheran so you have all these very particular cultures that designed um, denominations and movements of, of Christianity that each of them had a cultural gifting and, a, and I think a cultural brokenness. And so 
that's probably what formed the desire for me to understand what true solidarity and true diversity would look like, because it's not just to say uh, you're different, so you're bad. And it's not to say, oh, we're all just different and it has no meaning, but actually in our distinctives and in our uniqueness and in our leanings, we sharpen one another when we're able to have critical and crucial conversations about what it is that we're doing. Um, Without interrogating those things, you end up, you know, with a whole bunch of idolatry. So um, yeah, I think that's, that's been, I mean, I have hymnals from just about every, (laughs) just about every uh, denomination and expression. And I still read music and sing to them. And I like, you know, I still have that. I'm not hating it. I'm just like, this was a part of what shaped me and I'm not going to hate God for using this to shape me. And I think that I have to interrogate what it might've deposited that I need to reclaim, change, and in some cases erase, you know? Right. Right. Um, Yeah. No, that's so good. So you said two things I thought were really good. The first one, well, how you're saying right now that you take a little bit of everything and not in such a way as, you know, taking it, but you honor, right. All of these little aspects that shaped you, whether it's, you know, being in Catholic mass or whether it's, um, yeah, those, I mean, the good things about the Southern Baptist tradition that you felt like you took. I mean, I think that that's really, um, I think that's a really beautiful and healthy way to move forward as we talk about these conversations of sort of like deconstructing and decolonizing, um, but also taking those aspects of who we are and honoring them. And so I think that that's, um, that's really good. And that's something that I'm trying to do as well, right? Like, what can I take from my abuelita's faith? but also from the faith that I'm just immersed in, that I've been immersed in for the last several years, that is what's very different than that. And how can I not necessarily try and make my own thing, but um, understand how that shapes me as an individual person, but that's not an individualistic thing because it's tied to a greater community, right? So there's like these two things. I always say there's a difference between individualism and, you know, individuality, right? We're individual people, but we shouldn't be, you know, stuck in individualistic ways of thinking. So I thought that was really good. And then I love how you pointed out just the very almost obvious, but very ignored thing that all of these sort of worship traditions, they come from an ethnic or a racial or whatever you want to call it background. Like that's not something a lot of people, they're like, oh yeah, well, it's just, you know, like you said, reformed. Well, no, it's actually Dutch reformed. And I think that that's crucial um, for a lot of people when we think about worship primarily, and of course, so many other things. Um, But considering worship, I I know that you talk a lot about the intersection of justice and worship. And so, and in your book, I was reading, you know, parts of your book and you sort of ask, like, is there a quote unquote normal worship, right? Um, Because we think that there's like this sort of, yeah, there's just worship. So can you elaborate a little bit on the fact that there obviously isn't a quote-unquote normal worship and elaborate a bit on what's your, how do you see the intersection of justice and worship? Yeah. So I think for me, it has to do with primarily, even though I'm using the language of worship, I want to be clear for those that are listening that I'm also, I'm actually talking about theology. I'm talking about our understanding of who God is who we are and how we collectively interact with one another in the world because of that reality. So it's right. really our theology, our understanding of, of, of who God is. And part of my journey is like, I just want people to know what they're carrying. Like, what are you right. bringing in a room? So 
both the first comment you made and the second one, it's like, we need to know what we're bringing in a room. So my pet peeve is when people are like, I'm going to decolonize this thing. I'm going to deconstruct this thing. And it, you see yourself as an observer outside of the thing instead of right. somebody who's been deeply immersed in that, in those yeah. practices and in that understanding. So I'm like, the first place we have to start is by understanding our own culture. What has mm -hmm. shaped us? What has influenced us? And to know that that stuff is not stuff that we stand outside of, but something that we're, we're literally, it's in our DNA at this right. point. Um, it's like the grooves in our brains have been made and to undo those is going to take more than, you know, a conference and a mm -hmm. blog post to, right. to undo that situation. Or reading a so, book. Right, reading a book. And I, I know this because as a pastor, when we do premarital counseling and marital counseling for folks, we spend so much time talking about family of origin mm. so even in an individualistic kind of western you know like you know you're starting a new family with these two individuals type of we, we're still talking about family of origin and the right. reason is because everyone doesn't want to be their mother but the reality is they've been deeply shaped by their mother you know like mm. or everyone doesn't want to be their father but they've been shaped by the environment that their father and mother created so much so that when you're 30, 35, 40 and getting married, you're still having to talk about how did I learn to apologize? Mm -hmm. How did I learn to restore things? How did I learn about finances? How did my family teach me? What did they teach me about finances? So I, I want to just kind of dig my feet in there for a minute because I want, I want to remind myself as I'm doing the work <laughs> and to remind others that we don't undo or deconstruct or uproot or all those things without being in a daily practice of growing in awareness mm -hmm. and acknowledgement and repentance. Like yeah, amen. I, every day when I'm living and doing the work that I'm doing in an urban environment, an inner city environment, I'm reminding myself that just because I was educated doesn't mean I have the answers. Right. Yeah. And I know I, I came from here. I'm living here. I'm raising my, and still I'm like, okay, Sandra, just because you read it in a book, written by a person who comes from who studied African-American history does not mean people in this neighborhood would adhere to what's being said in that book. So who's right? The scholar who studied it and wrote about it, even if they're black or right. Latina or the people in the neighborhood who are experiencing it and feeling right. it. So whose words do we honor here? And it's like, mm -hmm. dang, that's a hard, that's a hard question, you know? So I just, I have a hard time, I think in the journey of the, the worship question or the theology question, when I'm really, I think the starting place where we ought to spend a whole lot of time and repeatedly go back to is what has influenced me? Because if we're not honest, we could be like, oh, I, I'm returning to this community where I grew up and, you know, I'm just like you. And, and the reality is, no, you're not. You right. come in with all of this stuff which hopefully some of it has been good. You know, I'm like, mm -hmm. hopefully my seminary degree has been a good thing. You know, like, <laughs> hopefully those years of Greek and Hebrew were in a total waste. And, you know, and they offer some kind of beauty. But at the same time, I, I am a product of that environment. And I'm a product of, for example, even as a Latina growing up in my very, very light skin. So right. there are things that I don't understand or that I miss that I need to interrogate. Um, so I think that's the starting place for pretty much everything I write, whether it's or do like whether it's uh, DEI work with organizations or consulting with churches or kind of writing in the area of worship and justice. What I'm really trying to help us understand, all of us, including myself and reminding myself is that we can't we are not observers 
um, mm -hmm. or on the outside or objective in any way when we're doing that work. As people of color, when we're decolonizing things, we if we if we have a college degree, yo, we have to start inside mm -hmm. ourselves and not on the outside yeah. with someone else because we have been affected, impacted, infected by all those things. So yeah, so I think, you know, I spent like three, the first three chapters of, of my book, The Next Worship, just talking about what is culture and how is it, you know, that kind of thing. And I think what I'm trying to get to is like, who we are is so shaped by our environment, what we have exposure to and what we don't have exposure to, who has invested in, it, in us and who has not invested in, in us, whose stories we know and whose stories we don't know, that no matter what people see on the outside, or no matter what people perceive you as or kind of label you as, we have to have the integrity of doing the work on the inside to know that we're interrogating in a good way what has shaped us and, and just to be aware of it. Like, I'm not sad that I have an education. Please, right. I'm still I'm still like, I'm, I'm working on a doctorate right now. So I'm mm -hmm. not like upset. I'm not trying to hide like, no, I don't like to learn. You know, like, I don't like books. I love books. <laughs> like, I have a shelf in my house, I have shelves. I had five shelves in my house full of books. And one day I turned around and I looked in my like swirly desk chair and I turned around and I just went, I have so many books. And I was like, so, and my husband walked in the room. He's like, you are such a nerd, you know? But I just, in my heart, I was like so happy that I had all of these resources. Right. Um, so anyway, yeah, I'm, I just, that's who I, that's what I bring with me and I'm not going to be yeah. ashamed of it. And I'm not going to let people discredit me because of my education, but I carry some things with it. <laughs> just saying, you know, maybe it's just me. No, that's so good. I think that what you're saying, um, is so important. And I, the more that I have conversations you know, with people on the ground. And um, I was actually having a conversation with a friend of mine and she said, you know, her mom, so she's, she's an immigrant and her mom as well. And her mom, you know, lives in a low income neighborhood in downtown LA. And, you know, my friend is always trying to like advocate for her mom and like, you know, you need to go in there, you need to ask for these things and, and sort of like this healthcare and this thing. And she's always like trying to do these things to like really advocate for her. And her mom, she laughs because her mom tells her like, estoy bien, like I'm fine, you know, like, estoy. and so we were having this conversation of she's like, it's so bizarre in so many ways that a lot of times, like those of us in these circles, like having these like conversations, like we're literally just talking to ourselves, right? Because a lot of times, like, you know, like when she goes to talk to her mom, like her mom is just like totally not even having that conversation, you know? And so I, I think about this all the time because I think about like, I'll sign on Twitter, you know, and everyone's saying all these things on Twitter and arguing about all these things. And then I remember like Twitter's 11% of the population and it's the most educated Girl. and it's the most elite percent of the population. <laughs> Right. So I'm like, so there is a huge disconnect, you know, or the conversations that those with privilege and including myself, right, those of us with privilege are having, and then the stuff on the ground where like in this weird example of my friend and her mom's like, estoy bien, like I'm fine. And she's just like, so I'm here, like I'm angry and I'm yelling and I'm advocating, but it's not even for the same things that my mom might want me to advocate for. Right. And so it's this, it's this disconnect. And with that, I know that that's something that you, that you say a lot or that you mention a lot is the idea of proximity, right? The power of proximity. I know Brian Steven talks, Stevenson talks about this a lot and just like, you know, how that really changes the conversations that we have, because we might be advocating or we might be saying things that a lot of people on the ground are like, 
that doesn't help me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that doesn't, that has nothing to do with me. Another thing that reminds me of that is just like the Latinx conversation, right? Like there's so much controversy, not controversy, but so much back and forth about Latinx because Latino, Latina people don't use that word. They can't say it, you know, they can't. So yeah, there's just a, a lot that goes into that. And so anyway, do you, is there anything that you want to say, um, particularly about the power of proximity? I know that that is something big in your life and as a pastor on the ground, living and, and working and, you know, with the people that you are pastoring and doing life with. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I was thinking about the the, the language issues. So let me let me say that the, the most helpful thing I, I think I've seen lately online about um, the term for our community is like just give people the freedom to use the term they want, you right. know. And I think that now I thought that was so helpful. I was like, oh yes, thank you. Just give us the freedom to use the term <laughs> yeah. we want because I think I change it every other week to, right. depending on where I'm at. Uh, I just try different things on. It's not that I'm confused about who we are. It's that um, I'm confused about who we how we want to talk about who we are right. in the diversity of who we are. So yeah, I think that was the most, the, the most helpful thing. I was like, Oh dang, that's true. We should just let people say whatever they want to say. Right. Um, and so, yes, you know, your, your friend's situation reminds me a lot of my like childhood because I, I grew up like my mom was always like, why are you trying to like change everything? You know, like, cause, everything like at eight years old I was like writing you know a little carbon copy you know a letter to Mattel telling them that we should have more black Barbies and more brown Barbies and then you know in high school I was doing stuff like every step of the way I was noticing injustices and trying to speak out and then when it got connected to my faith then I was like oh now like I'm gonna be fierce about it because this right. is about this is about honoring the dignity of the image of God and human beings like right, this is right, like right. serious stuff this is spiritual sacred holy justice you know right. um and so it only got it more intense as I got, as I got older <laughs> but my mom was always like you know I wish you would just love your country she, she thought she saw my speaking up against uh whatever was happening in the country or the city or you know policies as like me not appreciating what they had done for us. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if yeah. any of y'all are listening to this, you know, like, it's like, we, we gave up so much and we uprooted ourselves and we came to a country and a culture that we didn't understand to speak a language right. we didn't know to give you a better life. And you're not happy. Right. You're right, not right. And I, I remember a series of conversations like that over the years. Um, and I was like, mom, you have to understand you're a guest here. Mm -hmm. And very quite literally until she got her citizenship, you're a guest here, but this is my country in the sense that like I was born here. Right. So if, if, if I'm going to love my country, if I'm going to love my city, if I'm going to love, you know, the church, then I'm going to speak against what is evil in that space because I love the church because right. I love my country because I love. So it has to do not with my dissatisfaction or my hatred for it. It has to do with my desire to see those spaces ought to be right. So, but my mom very much had an immigrant mentality, which is, I'm just a guest here. I'm just a guest here. I'm just a guest here. Even though she came when she was 18. Right. So she's in her seventies now and she's been living here like a minute, you know, and she still feels, I think in some ways it's still that kind of guest mentality. Um, so if you're, if you are an immigrant or if you're the, you know, if you're, second generation, oftentimes you could feel this kind of like, you know, so I think it's, 
you know, it's both the immigration status that you have, as well as the generation you are, as well as all these different factors that shape you. And I think that those perspectives are very important to learn because I, I don't think the answer was to tell my mom, you know what, I shouldn't, I shouldn't do anything about the right. injustice that I see in my high school or the racism I see in my city, or, you know, I should just leave it alone because we should just be happy that they accepted us here. Right. Like, even though we disagree, doesn't mean I accept her perspective. It just means that her, her perspective informs me. Yeah. Um, and in the same way, I think every time I have a cup of coffee with someone in the building at our church, or every time I hang out with my neighbor near the mailbox, or every time there's, you know, a happy hour at the park, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, and I'm hearing people talk and I'm engaging with people, I'm learning the diversity of perspectives people have and why they have that perspective. Um, and even if I may not choose the same thing or be convinced by them, um, at least I understand why people come from where they come from. Like, why are they saying what they're saying? It gives me um, proximity, allows me to be more compassionate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So proximity doesn't only help me be more informed. It helps, it helps me to become more compassionate right. because I don't know how a Latina woman married to an undocumented man could ever vote for Trump. I don't know. Like, I mean, I don't know that. Like, how in the world does that happen? Um, except that I have to lean in and ask for questions, you know, ask questions. And then obviously I'm going to try to convince them otherwise. But, you know, um, but I think that we we sometimes end up those of us with a microphone sometimes end up saying things that would never be said by the people we're trying to advocate for. Oh yeah. 100%. In ways they would never say them. Right. To find solutions that they would never find helpful. Right. Yeah. And I've seen that in DC. I've seen that statewide. I've seen that in our city in the activism and community organizing that I do. I just I think that having different people at the table is very very important. Mm-hmm. And um and proximity allows us to at least understand why they would be coming to the conclusion that they're at, even if we are going to, oh, I should say, especially if we're going to try to change their mind. Yeah. Because yeah. you want what they think, what they think. Um, and oftentimes the people with the mic, you know, they're not the best. We're not the best listener. So I, I, I guess that's part of my desire is to just become a better neighbor and a better friend and a better mother so that I'm listening yeah. for the things. And then also just to have really good, like, friends who love you and tell you the truth right. and even tell you things that are maybe not the truth but that challenge you. Because I've had people, like, straight up be mean to me. But um, And some of them accuse me of stuff that I'm like, wow, that is not my intent. Mm-hmm. So let me see if I'm actually doing it. Let, right. let me see if, if the impact of what my behavior is actually doing this. Um, and sometimes I found that, yeah, I needed a change. Mm-hmm. And other times I Actually, I, I just felt very, very misunderstood, but at least I was invited to consider right. that I may be saying one thing with my words and doing another with my lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. 
I think um, you mentioned a lot of important things. Well, I'll, I'll start from the beginning when you were talking about just that complicated reality of being an immigrant and having a totally different view of things. And then, yeah, we're here as second generation people or as advocates or whatever. And, and they're really, it's a really complicated reality. And I think that's why I, I push back so much when I hear like, you know, just a generalizing of Latino, Latina, like, oh, the Latinx vote or, oh, the Latino this or, oh, the Latina that. Because, like, you know, coming from a Cuban-American background where, you know, in, in many ways my community was traumatized um, and however way you want to look at that, because, of course, the narrative is very complicated, but my community was very traumatized by totalitarianism, right? And many fled, you know, Cuba in the, in the 50s because they were afraid that they were going to be sent to the Soviet Union, you know, to be indoctrinated by communism. I mean, all these things, right? So. A lot of people, might, I mean, the majority of my community in Miami are Trump supporters because they are petrified of socialism, right? And so that's a, a very complicated thing. And so I, when I talk to my family or when I talk to, you know, I have to be able to, to listen as uncomfortable as that listening is, but understand that there is, you know, a trauma behind that, that there is a, a sort of whatever behind that. Um, and, and, that's, and that's the case for a lot of, you know, people Latino, Latina people or marginalized or whatever you want to call it that are on the ground and have very different realities than what many of us, like you said, with the microphone are, you know, kind of yelling over, you know, we're sort of yelling over them saying, well, this is what, so I think that, yeah, proximity in that sense goes both ways, right? Proximity is so that we can understand what we may not understand um, because we are second generation or we're educated or whatever, or we have light skin even. Um, but yes, also proximity in many ways to just invite other people at the table, people who, yeah, we might not have the opportunity to learn from, period. So I think that that was really good. Um, yeah, just the idea that we're not, we're not a monolith, our community's not a monolith, as much as the most woke, you know, person wants to talk about us, uh, we are not. And that just goes for, I know I, I spoke to Ali Henny recently, and and that was, she was saying the same thing about the Black community. She's like, you know, they talk about us like all we are is poor. And she's like, and we're, you know, we are a diverse group of people, but we talk about the Black community or the, you know. So anyway, um, I think proximity speaks to that really well. To proximity, the, the adjoining concept that comes with that is also issue of power. Yeah. I think at the same time, we have to consider what power does in the yeah what power does in the presence of diversity, mm. because what power does in the presence of diversity is it preferences certain people groups because of their education, the color of their skin, mm. the, the, their financial status, their, their document, you know, whether they're documented or not. So I think particularly my goal, like, as I think about my own life is I know I have power. I just know I do because I was raised in a certain environment. I was given access to certain things. I now live, you know, married to a white man who, you know, has a regular job that allows right. me to do what I want and take risks. So I know I'm taking risks. Not Am I really taking risks? No, my husband has a regular job. So right. if I want to quit my five jobs that I have and do nothing and eat Cheetos all day, I can do that. Mm -hmm. um, so I need to acknowledge that there's power. And that means in a community or in a dynamic, let's say, where that's anti-Black, anti-immigrant, anti-poor, you know, all those antis, you know, everything, anti-woman, then, then it's my responsibility and my love and my um, honor to, to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to center the voices that have the least power. Right. So a generation that's coming. It's not because I'm like, I don't feel like doing my work anymore. I still have lots to do. I hope in my, you know, I'm not 
I'm not dead. You know, I'm in my 40s. So I'm like, I'm not done working yet. But I, I want to provide on ramps for right. people to be heard in their 30s that nobody provided for me because they're there for white people. So if white people in their 30s are writing books, then Latinas, African-Americans, Native American women, Asian-American women, we should be writing in our 30s too. Right. Not wait till they're, we're older just because we, you know, didn't know we had anything to say or because people weren't listening. So I think that that issue of proximity also comes with the knowledge and understanding of power because power is always present. So if yeah. I'm in a community meeting and we're trying to figure out what to do around housing and I'm going to be noticing who is given the microphone, who is not given the microphone, who does this policy impact the most? It's going to impact folks that are black, folks that are undocumented, uh, you know, folks that are working, but are working poor. And so how can I make sure that if they're not given the mic and if they're not even present, that their needs are known right? I, and that their assets are known and that their perspective is known. And I can't do that if I don't have relationship. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, know, you can't get that from a book. So right. I think that that issue of power very much is that play in our community. I, I just say in communities of color for sure, but in the Latina community, because most of the people that have power are not black, are not uneducated, are not undocumented. Uh, most of us are educated, documented, light-skinned, you know, right. um, speak English, you know. And so I think that there are things, there's work we have to do. And, 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 uh, and I'm thankful for um, the work that you and others are doing to make sure that our perspectives are brought forward. Right. No, no, that's so good. And thank you for bringing that up as well, because yeah, um, there's so many things that comes with proximity. There comes with proximity of understanding and listening and there comes a proximity with, yeah, with sharing our power. And, um, and I think that what you said is important in that proximity in sharing the power, but not just not so that that's a, a means to an end, but that so other people are heard and that their needs are heard and that their needs are met. Right. And so I think it all kind of goes together, you know, so we're not talking about random theoretical things out here, but we're proximate to, to learn, to understand, to build a bigger table and we're proximate to meet needs that actually need to be met. And I think that that, um, that is key. So that is really good. Yeah. Thanks for um, clarifying that. So you run Chasing Justice. If you want to talk to us about what is Chasing Justice, um, what was your vision for that? Why, why did you start it? And what are your hopes and dreams for it? Yes. So Chasing Justice is a movement that is led by people of color um, and centers the voices of people of color, particularly emerging generations. So folks that are doing work in advocacy, in development, pursuing and chasing justice that are, that become the trainers for, and the kind of the guides for other people that are curious about how to integrate their lives of faith and justice. So we, the way we saw it, we were like this, look at, as a person that is chasing justice and doing justice has been in this work for a couple decades, sometimes it just feels so overwhelming. Like sometimes you look out and it's like the darkness of the world, the evil that you see, if, if you were to take it in, you would feel so overwhelmed by it. But we wanted to provide a, a guide to be able to find your kind of place in rebuilding a just world. Mm -hmm. And so how we envisioned it was really in three parts. One was digital content. So podcasts and, you know, master classes and kind of bringing people's stories. Like there are so many fantastic uh, young leaders who are kind of in their late 20s, early 30s that have, you know, they're into their, I call it like 
between I don't have a paycheck and I have a mortgage, you know, like mm-hmm. that, that range of your life. Like I don't mm-hmm. have a paycheck, I have a mortgage. I don't have a mortgage. So it's like, you're, 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 you have enough agency, you have enough influence. You're kind of right. starting your career. People are listening to you, <laughs> um, but you're not tied down by some decisions in life that cause you to choose to protect what is yours instead of mm-hmm. take risks um, for God's kingdom. So I think being a guide through telling stories, really, like we were, and of course we were starting to do that and then COVID hit. So we can't really take a camera crew anywhere to do anything, but we're trying to do that through IG live, through small videos, through podcasts. The second piece is, is really through cohorts. So we're going to be doing cohorts for, um, artists, activists and doing cohorts for women of color and doing cohorts for kind of pastor community leaders that are in there and kind of executive directing and influencing and they've been doing this for a decade but now they're like okay i'm having some major issues with my organization or i'm having some major issues with my own life as i'm trying to sustain the work of justice like i'm feeling like 15 years in i'm i just feel like i'm done and um so having cohorts for people um providing them with mentors you know people that can give them some advice people that can pray with them people that can give um, some spiritual formation to the work of justice and then the other one is some types of when we are all allowed to gather again some type of gathering um, that helps to equip people and for people to exchange information so yeah so we want to be basically your guide to rebuild the just world that's what we're trying to do Um, and everything is digital right now Um, we have a team of about eight people that are all volunteers and folks mostly about about 30 or under 30 who are trying to create content and curate content for their peers. Like what does it look like to live justly in, as a lifestyle in your finances, in your vocation, as a voter, by understanding your own racial identity, because these are all folks of color that are, that are curating right. this information. So, so yeah, so we're hoping that people won't give up. Yeah. We're trying to, I think we're trying to, give people what we either received or what we wish we would have had on the journey of justice so that you don't give up. And what I mean by that is either you don't give up on God because you can't figure out um, how to sustain spirituality in the midst of all of the injustice and evil that you see in the world, or um, you don't just give up on the justice journey and choose the easier life of religion that doesn't include an alteration in your lifestyle, Mm. um, which I think justice does. I mean, the reality is everybody wants to change the world, you know, but nobody wants to love their neighbor. Everybody wants racial justice in a country that, um, is, is, um, safe for all people, you know, or uh, where all people can flourish, but nobody wants to do the work of emptying their pockets to make sure that happens. And I've seen that for decades, girl. I've seen that. I've seen so many people like, I want to be an inner city school teacher. I want to change the education. So I want to do that. And then like in their own lifestyle, I'm like, but you don't want to like give up your favorite cup of coffee. So you're unwilling to alter your lifestyle in any financial way whatsoever. Um, And I'm just, I think it has to be everything. I just, I think our lives have to have integrity in the sense that they're integrated, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I actually don't think it's rocket science. I I think that it can be done if we're in a community of people that cheers us on along the way and inspires us to do things differently. Yeah. So that's what we're hoping. I love it. So good. I love that. Yeah. It's run by people of color, which we need more. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Lots of people 
people that are like, can I volunteer? And I'm like, mm, really needed to be people of color curious. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love that. And I love the idea of just holistic living, holistic justice, holistic faith, holistic and embodied. Right. Um, I feel like, you know, that's something that I, I, I'm seeing it more now and I'm excited that this idea of just embodiment and people wanting to live um, present and full and holistic and embodied lives. And that starts with, I mean, I think that that has to do with everything we've been talking about, right? Proximity and, um, you know, looking backwards to look forward. You know, I always say that to be a good theologian, you have to be a good historian and you have, you know, all these things of being holistic um, followers of Jesus. And so I think that that's so good. So thank you for the work that you are doing. And one last question before you go, I, I've seen places and, and I know there's been a lot of conversations, whether it's about solidarity between women, which is, you know, so necessary, um, solidarity between women of color and how we need to support each other. And so if you want to say a little bit about solidarity between communities of color, right, black and brown communities, and, and what that means to you and why that's why you believe it's so important, which, you know, it is, but if, what you have to say to that end. Wow. Yeah. That's just one more little question. Solidarity <laughs> on, uh, okay. Um, no, that's okay. I got, I got time. Um, so, you know, there's so much I could say there. The reason that we feel so strongly for chasing justice, that the answer and the center to how to move forward as a, as a Christian body, the community is communities of color is because we have been interrogating what it looks like to love Jesus in the midst of injustice. So I'll start by saying that. I think that a lot of our white uh, counterparts, you know, brothers and sisters who are like, oh, I want to be on this journey. Um, it's like they get two years in and they want to give up because they realize who they are themselves, what they've participated in, what they've been complicit in, what their church has been complicit, and they can't make the turn um, without leaving behind Jesus somehow, or just again, like right. giving up and just going back, snapping back to where they were. And I think it's because Western theology does not hold a theology of suffering. It doesn't hold one. It's not taught to us. It's not embodied in any way. Like you have to like go on a missions trip somewhere for two weeks and like suffer for Jesus. You know, I mean, it's so, you know, it is what it is. Um, <laughs> and so because that theology of stuff because the embodiment of suffering isn't there and because it's not it's not it's not collective right. and it's not generational mm -hmm. right then then it's hard to lead the way in integrating jesus and justice when you don't know how to do that well so i feel like people of color uh black indigenous people of color and specifically women have been doing that collectively mm -hmm. generationally for hundreds of years mm. and yet still have been able to hold a faith in a creator God mm. who gives life and breath and sustains you for all that you have to do. And today, if I go out into the streets here next to my church and I ask any woman in this neighborhood, they will tell me how to sustain my life of loving Jesus while doing justice. Every single one, not because they've been taught to do that, but because it's been embodied for them. Right. So I feel like there is no way forward for the church in the U.S. There is no way forward for the church in the West to grow, to thrive, to call people to a, a, a lifestyle worship in Jesus without communities of color at the center. Mm. 
Amen. Western faith, we know it's shrinking. We know it's anemic. We know it has no teeth. And so how in the world is an impotent church supposed to go forward in this next generation without leaders of color who embody this experience in curating that way, that pathway forward? So I really believe that that's why for me, it's like, I mean, it's not that I don't love my husband or that I don't think he has anything to say about justice. It's that he shouldn't be at the center. Right. It's that he shouldn't be leading. And so I don't think that's true just about justice. I would say that's true about everything. Discipleship, spiritual formation, worship, evangelism, church growth, leadership. I mean, pick a topic. People of color, and it's specifically women of color, Black, Indigenous, Latina, Asian, women of color should be glo the global, you know, like Nigerian women. I mean, pick what right. should, that should be at the center because that level of, not that our faith is perfect, but it embodies something different yeah. that can complement whatever has been happening, can interrogate whatever has been happening and can uproot and tear down right. the things that need to be gotten rid of. So I really think um, that's why we're all so exhausted. Can I say that, Kat? Are you exhausted? Yeah. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. So tired. <laughs> so tired. Um, and I think it's because so many of our sisters that you and I know um, whether or not we have been given a prophetic gift, our ministry is prophetic. Mm -hmm. Whether or not we have been given a prophetic gift and we feel like we have the gift of prophecy just by showing up in the room in the U.S., in a church, we are embodying a prophetic ministry. Mm -hmm. And it is exhausting. Mm -hmm. so it feels very much like, um, it feels very much like Jeremiah. Like I, I want like all, all my life, which we don't have to, time to talk about this, but all my life I was like, I'm identifying with Esther, you know, I'm identifying with Esther. And the last two years I'm like, man, I am Jeremiah. This freaking sucks. Like that. if I have to cry one more day, if I have to shed one more tear, if I have to snot up one more shirt or couch, I'm weeping all day long. Right. Um, and it's not because I don't have faith in God. It's because I know the work that you and I are going to have to do sister mm. and sisters. If you're listening to this, the work that we have to do is so hard. Yeah. And it's because it's this tearing up and, you know, tearing down and uprooting and in the, in the life of Jeremiah and especially even in that, in that call that he gets, he's given these six verbs and only two of them are positive to build and plan. <laughs> the other four are like taking, getting rid of that mess, right? Overthrowing it. Right. Um, and so oftentimes it feels like, um, whether it's in our communities or in our, in our institutions, we're given the topic of putting our finger, we're given the, the, the responsibility of putting our finger on what's wrong mm. and saying that has to go because you cannot, plant on cement mm. yeah. nothing will grow there right. um so yeah i think that's that's why i think <sighs> women i mean it's not that i want it's not i'm not like man i just women we're so out here by ourselves and no one's listening to us please inc please include us please include no that's not at all what i feel i feel like y'all need some help right and i'm gonna tell you that Getting six white guys in an air-conditioned office with all your degrees is not going to result in anything else but the mess that you created. Ooh, yes. So if you want to move forward, right, 
center us. Don't just listen to us, center us. Put us in the center of the room. Be silent for about 12 months and see what comes out of that discipline of silence. Or else maybe the Holy Spirit can come, come and silence all of you for a year, you know? Um, and it's not, again, I love my husband. He has lots of great things to say. I have tons of white peers. Please don't hear me. I love white people. Um, I just, you're not the center. Right, right, right. And if we are going to do our jobs, Kat, of bringing our community's voices in, then we are going to have to find a way to create a place at the table that doesn't squash them right. and that doesn't, um, that doesn't abuse their dignity. Right. And I don't think that's possible in some of the spaces that we're in. So I think um, the, the elevation of women of color, the elevation of black female voices, the elevation and the, the, the acknowledgement of native uh, female voices, though, that's the stuff that we do because it is not only correct um, in like returning that, you know, return, like acknowledging their dignity, but it's also correct because it's the only, I believe it's the only answer forward. Right. Um, and that includes the global church. So I, I don't think, I, I mean, people of color in the U.S., the global church, that's where the answer is going to come from. If the rest of y'all don't want to listen, the reality is God will grow the church. Right. The Holy Spirit, she will move and the work will get done. Exactly. And we'll just be standing on the side, complicit in the things that didn't happen because we didn't want to move. So, um, so yeah, I'm like, I'm unapologetic. Women have to be at the center um, and vulnerable women have to be at the center. So whatever we have to do to make, to keep, to keep paving that way forward. Mm -hmm. If I got to come home and cry every day, then I got to come home and cry every day. Right. So good. Amen, girl. Preaching. I'm here like, whoo. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm just but, talking to myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, amen. Amen to everything that you said. And let us keep doing the the hard and beautiful work and keep paving the way and um and keep inviting and centering and elevating the voices that need to be centered and elevated. So anyway, thank you so much, Sandra, for chatting with me and for all these prophetic words that you have preached to us today. And again, I really do want to thank you for, um, for doing what you can to help me along on this journey. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Anything that you want to share as far as where people can follow you? Yes. Uh, you can find me over at, um, at, and then my name, Sandra Van Opstel, um, which I'm sure you can find somewhere on the show notes. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you can also find me at chasing justice underscore, um, and the, both those places I will point you that's the same for Facebook and for Instagram and for Twitter. So they'll point you to any websites or resources that we're creating and developing. Um, if you want to see pictures of my kids or, you know, my gray hairs when I'm trying to <laughs> stay sane during remote learning, you'll see those there. <laughs> Perfect. And you have a, an Enneagram book coming out, correct? Oh my gosh. Yes. So I am contributing to a series of books that InterVarsity Press is um, developing on the Enneagram. Uh, they're devotional books, so I'll be writing 40 Days on Being an Eight. So in case Ooh. you guys could not tell from this podcast, I am an eight with a seven wing. So yes, I'm a Latina. Very specifically, I'm an Argentine Colombian Latina eight with a seven <laughs> wing. Okay. <Love> it. <laughs> kind of eight with a seven wing. Right. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'll be writing that. And I'm also working on another couple of projects, but um, honestly, the, the next worship, which was the book I wrote five years ago, it's still like, 
living and active out there. So um, I have to find enough time to sit down and write the next one, uh, which will be titled Chasing Justice. Awesome. Well, thank you again. This was so good.